thank you for tuning into the third episode of the PyData Deep Dive Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Sweeky, and today I'm joined by Matt Rockwell. Matt is best known for his work on Dask, a parallel computing package built into the PyData stack. After working on open source software at Anaconda and NVIDIA, he now founded his own company, Send Around Dask, called Coil Computing. In this episode, we talk about the insights into open source he gained throughout his career, what Dask is and how it is funded, and then, of course, talk about his new company. Now, without further delay, I give you the episode that I call Parallel Computing and Founding Open Source Companies. Today, I'm joined by Matt Rocklin. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the PyData Deep Dive podcast. Thanks for having me, Thomas. I'm glad to be here. So I first got alerted to you when you were doing work on SimPy, which I think by now is a couple of years ago. And I'd just be curious to hear more about your origin story, how you got started with Python and data science and open source, uh, those type of things. Yeah, no, that was uh, more than a couple of years ago now. That was got to be 2013 or something. Oh, yeah, so I was a graduate student in computer science, and I was using SimPy for a little bit of research at the time. I was sort of interested in so SimPy for background is like a Mathematica-style library in Python. It does integrals, solves linear algebra problems, that sort of thing. So I was using SimPy in my research, and it was really interesting because in open source software, I got just so much more feedback from doing the software part of it than I was getting from doing the research part. And that was a really good feeling. So I ended up doing a Google Summer of Code project with SimPy, and that was, that was great. It taught me a lot about version control and testing and proper, proper development practices. And that really sort of hooked me into the open source Python space, which I found to be just really welcoming and really engaging. That's really interesting. Yeah. Curiously enough, I just remembered SimPy was also that project that got me into open source. Aaron Moira was really generous with his time in explaining how GitHub works and how to do the first pull request. So it's interesting that SimPy seems to be a good ramp for getting people hooked onto open source. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're actually, it's not just Aaron, it's, it's, Dozens of people in that community, they've really focused on how to onboard new people. I think they had a lot of success with the Google Summer of Code project. So they got very, very good at mentorship. And many people in the PyData space actually came out of SimPy. They were a good generation of, um, of interesting developers. And it seems from then on, you just started doing open source in on all kinds of different umbrellas, but always that seems to be the common theme, what it motivates you to spend so much of your time on open source? Yeah, I think at first there was a stark contrast between my academic work, where I was really hunting to find some bit of novelty I could work on. And then you know, I'd write a paper and then no one would read it. And then it, was, it just sort of went out into the void. When open source, the feedback was just immediate. It was constant. There was a ton of it. It felt really, really good. So I think, to be honest, starting off, it was probably addiction. Open source really gave a lot of rapid positive feedback, which is exactly how you get people addicted to things. Uh, actually, between grad school and my sort of current work, I actually did a brief postdoc at a DOE national lab. And it was, uh, it was just much less fun than doing open source work. And so when I eventually switched, I moved to Continuum. I sort of quit the postdoc after about six months, went to Continuum, which gave me the privilege of working on open source full time. Or this, oh, no, this job is amazing. This is way better than the last job I had. And so I had a strong motivation to make sure I always had a job that good in the future. And so I did a lot of work there just to make sure that always happened. Yeah, and what I love about open source is exactly the reach that you can have and the impact that you can have. Yeah. I know that for, it's very similar for my own PhD project where I spent years writing all these papers. And the one thing that is by far my most cited paper is the PyMC3 one. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, open source and in general software contributions just can have this very wide impact on just not just a single domain, but all domains. And that I think is really motivating. Yeah, that's no, really exciting. You know, I get to, I actually switched from physics and astronomy where I was before into computer science because of this, this breadth of application. And it's really exciting. I get to talk to people who fight climate change, people who fight corruption, people who are fighting cancer or looking into human health. And all of them use this software. It's actually a really exciting place. I don't know of any other job where you get to talk to all of these important problems all at the same time. And the Python space is actually really exciting because all of them are using Python for this work. 
it's just a it's a really fun place to be right now. Yes, yeah, I completely agree. I'd be curious to hear more about the time that you spent at Anaconda, what that was like, how you joined, where you joined, and those types of things. Yeah, Anaconda was really just a wonderful job, to be honest. So I joined, again, coming off of this postdoc where I was writing papers, it wasn't very engaging. And I joined with a bunch of other open source developers in the company. And uh, my job was to think about how to make Python run faster on larger data sets. Originally, I worked on a project called Blaze for about a year. And sort of a, a piece of Blaze that was very successful sort of turned into Nest. So I focused on that for the next sort of three or four years. Uh, originally, that was sort of just to me. And then we hired a bunch of other developers who were also very talented. And we, uh, we you know, worked on parallel computing algorithms. We worked on making the rest of the open source system uh, work with those parallel computing systems. So, you know, compression libraries, file formats, you know, cloud technologies, all these sort of little bits and pieces of the infrastructure that are necessary to bring Python and make it work at scale. What I really love about Continuum has always been that they just see exactly what is missing in the PyData ecosystem and then just build it. And the Anaconda Python distribution is a great example, but so is Dask, where Python was extremely well suited for the single machine use case, but not for the parallel one. So then uh, you move to NVIDIA uh, more recently. Why the switch and what, uh, what was the time like at NVIDIA? Yeah, so just briefly, Dask also works on the distributed cluster use case. It works on a variety of scales. But yeah, so I think the, the difference between uh, Anaconda and NVIDIA, Anaconda was very much mission-driven at the time. Right, those are the founders of Anaconda, cared about open source. That was kind of the reason everyone was there. That, that shifted over time. Anaconda has gone through a bunch of different uh, transitions over the years. But you know, everyone was there on mission, making the world better through open source software. But it was a relatively small company. When I, I eventually leave Anaconda, I was going to make a vast company. And NVIDIA said, don't do that. Come work for us for a year. We'll hire a big team and really commit to Dask. And they did. So I moved to NVIDIA for about a year. And NVIDIA is interesting in that they're, they're not mission-driven in the same way. They don't care deeply about open source. They care mostly about selling GPUs. But the resources were just, were just so much greater that if you could convince people why a certain course of action to sell GPUs, they would invest very heavily in open source. A very interesting time at NVIDIA right now because of the growth of GPU sales through open source software, think of things like TensorFlow, PyTorch, these sell a lot of GPUs, that the company is now orienting itself around open source software, not for altruistic reasons, but for, for profit, profitable reasons. But that's okay, right? If we're able to, to play this sort of game of convincing NVIDIA why it's good for them to invest, they invest you know, not hundreds of thousands of dollars, but many millions of dollars. And so they're really a good partner right now. That's really interesting, yeah. And I think not just for NVIDIA, right, but for companies in general. So if we want to bring them along and make them good open source citizens, there has to be the monetary incentive for them to do so. It's a bit naive, I think, to just assume that businesses in the business of just doing the right altruistic thing and <laughs> wanting to play with the community. I mean, sure, that is there to some extent, but the much better motivator will be that there are good rationales for doing so. And it's that's a really interesting case study that for NVIDIA, that was the case. And I assume that if it's the case for NVIDIA, um, I mean, we do see that it'll, it's also the case for many other companies like Google and Facebook and these types. Yeah, it's um, as open source has been displacing proprietary software, there's just a ton of money lying around if we know how to use it or if we know how to get it. And understanding the incentives of these companies and how they operate, what they're comfortable doing, what they want, uh, can really help us derive a lot of value for everybody. In the case of hardware companies, it's actually pretty clear. They don't want to sell software. They want people to use their, their hardware. And so there's sort of a natural alliance. When you get to Google and Amazon, it's a, a little bit weirder. They have their own software ecosystems they want to promote, so things get a bit more strange. Right. Uh, but it's still there's still something there, and it's sort of on us, I think, to figure out how to welcome them into the open source community and how to make sure that they are operating in a way that benefits everyone. And we can do that. We just need to get a little bit creative. Do, do you have any creative ideas on that? <laughs> Something a good example here is, um, I think the NumPy API is, is interesting because NumPy's been around for a really long time mm -hmm. and many people use it. And now there's all these new NumPy's, 
right? There's TensorFlow, there's PyTorch, there's Theano, there's MXNet, uh, KuPy, Dask implements the Rapids API or the NumPy API. And so that I think is maybe a fail case where it would have been good if everyone sort of did the same API to make everyone more comfortable. And now, right now, sort of, you just have to pick and choose. Right. Oh, am I going to build this thing on TensorFlow? Am I going to do this on PyTorch? I think actually your project, PyMC, is a good example of this. You all chose to base PyMC4 on TensorFlow. Uh, and that's, that's tricky now, right? If I'm a PyTorch user, it's hard to use PyMC4. There's these sort of splits yeah. that are happening. So I think ways that we can combat this or to, to fix this is to make you know, good, consistent APIs Welcome companies into that discussion because they may have needs that we need to be open to. And just make sure that everyone is sort of pushing in the same direction. And that mostly means that we need to listen more, I think, and be more receptive to companies. Yeah, those are some really good points. And actually, Travis Oliphant, who was on the podcast before, made the very same point about the NumPy API. And also that one of the problems there was that the NumPy, NumPy API is just too big. So it's, I mean, at back then, of course, it wasn't designed to ever support the use case that there could be all kinds of mm -hmm. different spin-offs, uh, legit spin-offs, because no one would want to replicate the full API. But now we have this fracturing. And, and he did have some really interesting thoughts on trying to yeah, bring everyone back. And I think, uh, I forgot what it was called, but basically an additional layer on top that would sort of replace the NumPy API, but then would be computational backend agnostic. So I think that is an interesting direction to go into. Yeah. yeah. Trying to convince the companies to play along, I think will be critical in the success of that endeavor. But anyway, I think it mostly just means that we need to listen more. Uh, and the, you know, the NumPy API is one example out of thousands. Another good one, I think, is, I think I heard somewhere that, so Instagram is a giant company that has serves you know, a ton of computation. They're all based in Python. And I think that just like the compute cost of running Python at Instagram is, you know, is millions of dollars a year to the point where they're actually incentivized to make Python itself faster. You know, we actually now have a company and it's in their interest to make not just NumPy or Pandas faster, but the whole language faster. And so, you know, again, if we can sort of open things up and say, okay, what would you need in order to commit engineering resources to C Python, sort of the major Python runtime, yeah. you know, and just being open to that and welcoming some of their engineers in, it probably makes sense for them. It is in their interest, their self-interest to, uh, to invest. And there's, you know, again, many cases like this. NVIDIA is interested in selling GPUs. Intel wants to sell CPUs. There's probably some AMD angle we could run with somewhere. Uh, and so there's a lot of sales I think we need to do and figure out. And as a community, so you said, listen more, but do you think there are more specific things that we can do better to welcome and be... Yeah, collaborative in this way? Listening thing is the first one. I think most of the companies don't feel welcome or often just aren't invited mm. to uh, a lot of the meetings that we have. I think, I mean, so my solution to this, maybe we'll talk about this in the future, is to make companies, right? Companies often know how to interact with companies much more than they know how to interact with an open source community. And so I think Continuum and Anaconda were a really good example of this, right? They took a community, they made a for-profit company inside of that community, and then a bunch of different organizations were able to engage. And that funded a bunch of work. It funded, you know, my work for the last five years. And so, yeah, I don't know. There are various organizational mechanisms we can do uh, that I think help in getting some of that money and directing it toward the right places. Yeah, that's a really interesting line of discussion. Next, I want to dive a little bit into Dask, which of course is your major project that you worked on for many years and that I think made the Python success story in data science way better and more comprehensive because so many more use cases are now supportive. And well, one of the main things that I like about it is how well it integrates into the PyData ecosystem rather than trying to reinvent everything. But maybe just to start very simple, what's your general elevator pitch of Dask to explain it to a data scientist who maybe hasn't used it before? Yeah, so Dask is a Python library that was designed to provide parallelism to the existing Python data science stack. So if you use NumPy, Pandas, Scikit-Learn, or any of the other hundreds of libraries out there, and you have large data sets or you want to operate in parallel, Dask might be a good fit for you. I'll maybe give two levels in which people use Dask. First, Dask provides parallel variants of those common APIs. So if you know NumPy, if you know Pandas, if you know Scikit-Learn, 
you can use more or less those same APIs, but operate on you know, 10 terabyte data sets in the cloud very comfortably. In that way, it's kind of like Spark, but in a very Python native way. That's maybe half of Dask's use today is providing parallel versions of those, those APIs. Uh, the second half was a surprise. What happened is when we built Dask, we had to build like a fairly sophisticated dynamic task scheduler under the hood, kind of like a, an engine for parallel computing. And that system that powers our parallel NumPy or parallel pandas. But many people in Python, it turns out, don't want a big NumPy array, a big pandas data frame. They're building something completely different that's very custom to their application. And so they just want the parallel engine. They just want the internals to build something, you know, custom internal trading strategy instead of, you know, hedge funds, people building libraries on top of Dask that are not what we expected, you know, Airflow, that kind of thing. The experience is odd. It's kind of like we built like a really nice car, which was a sort of parallel pandas thing, which we thought everyone would want. And a bunch of people came by and they said, hey, that's a really cool car. I just want the engine because <laughs> I am building a rocket ship or I'm building a submarine. That's awesome. Yeah, it's great. And this is, I think, really typical of the sort of split that you see between traditional like big data tooling, like databases or Spark or those sorts of things, where they're really focused on like a, a common application, which is sort of the business analytics application, and the Python community. And the Python community generally does a bunch of weird stuff. Yeah. Like if you're in Python, you were doing something strange, usually. I think <laughs> the database was not enough for you. You needed to write some custom C code. You needed to hook into these other libraries, you're doing something strange. And so about half of Dask's use today is actually in this, this sort of custom case, people building really custom things on top of Dask. And it provides all the parallelism without bringing in a lot of opinions. Dask very much was designed to use standard Python APIs to hook into all these other libraries. And so it's just, just, just enough parallelism without forcing you into a way of thinking. Yeah, and I mean, what a great testament to the design of the library that the engine was good enough to be general enough to be used in all these different use cases that you didn't even foresee at the time where you were building it. What are some of your favorite success stories of Dask where you just saw it being used in a way that maybe you didn't anticipate? You were just like, wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, so I'll give maybe one that I did anticipate and then a few that were, were novel. One of my favorite use cases is the Pangeo project. Uh, so Pangeo is a collaboration of scientists and open source software developers that work in sort of the earth sciences space. So think climate change, oceanography, weather prediction, hydrology, you know, figuring out what rivers will flood when there's a massive hurricane, you know, in the Philippines. And so they use Dask and sort of the NumPy API to analyze these sort of large volumetric data sets at scale. They're operating in the cloud, they're operating on giant high-performance computing machines, and they're doing this all as sort of semi-expert scientists, or expert scientists, but with not a ton of computer science background. And so this is the traditional case of using big NumPy on large data sets to do science. That's incredible. Yeah, it's been a great collaboration. It's good seeing a lot of open source developers and scientists on the same phone calls every week. Good having impact, like I feel good about that work. Maybe a couple of, of less traditional cases, so maybe more surprising cases. One of my favorite projects these days is Prefect. Prefect is like Airflow. I'll assume your viewers know Airflow. So some of the Airflow developers left. They made a new project called Prefect, which is a bit more modern, can handle a lot of the, the issues that Airflow wasn't able to handle. And they wanted it to be you know, scalable and responsive and deploy easily in the cloud. And so they built it off, off of Dask. And so this is a completely different kind of application, right? It's not a big data application. It's a coordination problem, and it's a real-time problem, and it's a responsive problem. And so Dask sort of fits all the things that they needed, then builds a bunch of business logic on top. The last one I'll say is Rapids, actually. So I've worked on the Rapids team for the last year. Rapids is an NVIDIA project to do scalable GPU data science. So NVIDIA made a bunch of money off of deep learning. They want to do the same thing with data science. And so they built variants of NumPy, Panda, Scikit-Learn but that run on the GPU. And then they, they now use Dask to do all sort of the multi-GPU work and the multi-node work for that. And that's actually really fascinating, not from an algorithmic standpoint. I mean, parallel algorithms is kind of the same thing that we do with pandas, but it's fascinating from a hardware standpoint. So we're now connecting Dask and the Python ecosystem up to you know, GPU accelerators for one, which is fun, but also you know, high-performance networking and different deployment techniques. 
And the level of just high performance understanding that's in that team is, uh, is fascinating. Like I had to sort of shift my entire understanding of what was fast and slow over the last year. And it's been fun bringing that into Python. I'm actually not that familiar with Rapid. So is it for multi-GPU workflows or is it also for more targeted GPU computing, something that you would normally do with CUDA, but more high level? Yeah, so Rapid supports both single GPU and multi-GPU workloads. So let's look at Pandas for a second. Mm -hmm. So Pandas is written in some combination of C and Cython with a Python API on top. And that gives data scientists the ability to do things like parsing CSV files, but much more quickly than they would be able to in normal Python code. Rapids is the exact same thing, right? It's giving Python users a Python API that looks like Pandas. It's got a read CSV method. But now that method is written not in C or in Cython, it's written in CUDA. And so rather than working at you know, 50 megabytes per second of read bandwidth, it operates at like one to two gigabytes per second. And so they've effectively just done all of the common data science algorithms. They've written them in CUDA. So they're very, very fast. And NVIDIA has very effective CUDA engineers, as you might expect. And then they've given Python APIs around that. And so if you have a GPU and you know pandas or NumPy, you can use that GPU to do those things now. And that's it's exciting. It changes the performance profile a lot in lots of applications. And is there an easy rule to say, if you have workflow X, then you should use Rapids, but not in this other case where maybe it's more serial or not as parallelizable? There are those rules. I mean, historically, we thought of GPUs as being good for you know compute-heavy tasks uh, that are highly parallelizable, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want to use it over a sequential for loop. But honestly, my intuition has completely been destroyed by working with the Rapids team. <laughs> so I used to think of GPUs as only being good for you know matrix multiplies or dense linear right. algebra or you know deep learning. And something like CSV parsing is not something I would think of a GPU as being good for, or, or even like a database merge. Yeah, totally. But surprisingly, surprisingly, they are, right? The NVIDIA engineers have been able to do some crazy things around some algorithms that I did not think would be fast on the GPU. So I think there's, currently the answer is you profile a bunch of things and you see what's fast and slow, and then you choose the right hardware, right? If you're doing FFTs, great, use a GPU. If you're doing, I don't know, random access, use a CPU. And we're gonna, I think we're gonna build that intuition as we go over the next few years. But what's exciting is that we can now pick and choose, right? And it's easy if you know the Python APIs to, uh, to make that choice as you like. Yeah, so the way I would imagine it is from the desk perspective, it probably the code looks very similar to whether you use the GPU backend or the, the CPU backend. Mm -hmm. That's really powerful, yeah. Yeah, there's so many things that have and continue to impress me about Dask. I remember the first one just being how clever it integrates that it's not trying to recreate its own ecosystem and say, well, now we have to do everything in this one way. And I think Spark is guilty of that, where, well, you want to do machine learning on Spark, so you have to use our own custom machine learning library. Well, in Python, everyone likes to use scikit-learn, everyone likes to use pandas. So rather than trying to replace all of those things, just integrate them. And that makes, well, the code for Dask much simpler because you're just behind the scenes are calling into those pandas functions. You just figured out how to essentially map and reduce them. The reason why Dask has been so successful is that we didn't have to do a ton of work. Like we're, we're really cheating. Like Dask is really just a cheat, right? We took like the Python data science stack, NumPy, pandas, scikit-learn, hundreds of other libraries, and we wrote some parallel algorithms around them, but we're using that code, right? We're not reinventing the C code that's actually doing the, you know, the CSV parsing, for example, or the, the merge code. And then we're just combining that with Python's networking stack, Tornado, AsyncIO, deployment tooling, you know, Boto, the Kubernetes libraries, right? All of this stuff already existed. And we're just coming in and we're integrating all of those pieces. And so, you know, Dask looks really impressive today but the code base has got to be, you know, a tenth or a twentieth of what the Spark code base is, just because we're able to sort of fit these things together in a way that everyone can agree upon. And that's really the, I think, the, the hard crux of building Dask was understanding the community, understanding their needs, understanding the APIs that everyone could agree on, and pushing on those APIs. Right? We had to change some things in Scikit-Learn to make Scikit-Learn work with Dask. But there were things that Cyclone was comfortable changing. And that was a lot of social interaction. Same with NumPy, same with Pandas, 
Same with Tornado. Same with CPython. Right? The DAS developers have touched hundreds of libraries in the Python ecosystem just to make everything fit a little bit better. And that's really most of the work that we do. We're mostly just community integrators. And as a result, we get this really nice, scalable, big data, parallel computing solution that was already there, right? We just had to sort of put things together. If you allow me to interject there, does it cause problems then? Because all those packages that you integrated with move at their own pace. Yeah. So I would imagine that that could be challenging if they break the APIs, change the APIs, things that used to work in a certain way stop working. Yeah, absolutely. And that is something, that's why we have continuing relationships. So a good example here is that I think Pandas 1.0 was released last week. And you know the day before Pandas 1.0 was released, Dask was released with a 1.0 compatible version. So there's definitely upkeep on this kind of community activity. But that's where, again, the community comes in, right? The person who did both of those releases was Tom Augsburger, who is a Pandas core dev and a Dask core dev. And the fact that we're not a bunch of siloed projects, the fact that we are a community, is what makes that a solvable problem, right? When scikit-learn changes something, they know it's going to break Dask because they're also Dask maintainers. And they fix Dask, or we fix scikit-learn when those things happen. Yeah, that's the way we've always operated. We always fix each other's code. We think about protocols. We coordinate. And that's just how the community operates today. So, yeah, what are the the main directions for Dask going forward, just in terms of the feature set, anything that you want to double down on or maybe certain use cases that you found are not as important? Yeah, it's interesting. People always ask about the Dask roadmap. And my usual answer is I have no idea. Most of, I think the sort of the core of Dask has been mostly stable for the last couple of years. We don't, we don't change that much anymore. What we're seeing now is a lot of uh, horizontal expansion. So we're, I mean, I mentioned libraries like, like Prefect or Rapids. Uh, GeoPandas is adding some Dask capabilities. We're seeing a lot of people adopt Dask. And that's probably where most of the effort is today, is in this spreading to other libraries. And that's not something that you know, the, the core Dask community controls. We just enable that, right? When the GeoPandas developers arrive, we make sure that they're around. We connect them with the right people. We make sure that they are plugged in. So I think right now, Dask is mostly in a, playing a service role. Some of the things that we do think about a lot right now are deployment. So you mentioned you know, deploying Dask on Kubernetes on Google. You know, Olivier can do that, but you know, a large institution or a less sophisticated developer usually can't. And so I think a lot of the activity that I'm seeing today is around making that easier. And that's both happening in open source and in a few for-profit companies that are spinning up. Yeah, that's maybe what I would say mostly. It's spreading out to other projects, uh, making it easier to deploy, and lowering the barrier to adoption, especially in the, in the distributed computing case. And then, as you mentioned, how tightly integrated Dask is with the rest of the PyData ecosystem, I'd also be curious to hear your perspective on the current state of the PyData ecosystem more generally and, and what way you see we should move to and what are important steps for the future. Yeah, that's a good question. I think that the PyDot ecosystem is, again, sort of going back to our sort of previous conversation about money, we are way more popular than we ever expected to be. And that's, that's interesting, right? You know, most of us, I think, were graduate students 10 years ago. We sort of switched to this computer science thing. We're now having, you know, we're now negotiating with Google. And that's, that's a weird thing for like an old you know, physics student to do. So I think navigating that influx of money and influence influx of influence is going to be an interesting thing for us to face over the next few years. You know, I think we're seeing more focus on governance and on how we make decisions. Mm-hmm. I think we're seeing an understanding of that we need to move faster before other, other software ecosystems sort of swallow the Python space. You, know, you can imagine TensorFlow making data frames and making other things. And now suddenly people have switched between, do I want to use PyData? Do I want to use TensorFlow ecosystem? So it's a bit of, of positioning, I think, we need to do. Uh, but that's mostly social and cultural. On the technology side, I don't know. I'm actually kind of excited to see where that goes. Uh, there's a lot of fun new projects. You know, there's Arrow coming out of Versa Labs. I think Dask is pretty cool. Mm. We're seeing new storage formats. And we're seeing, I think, also a growth of Python in new sciences. Right. So I've been talking a lot to biologists recently. 
and and they're now all switching into into Python, into PyData. It's great to hear. And you're welcoming them, you know, figuring out what the what file formats they need, figure out how their users need to interact. You know, maybe they're not Jupyter users. Maybe they need point and click applications. I like the project Napari, which is an image viewer out of the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, because it exposes Python code to not data scientists, but to actual lab bench scientists with point and click interfaces. I think that's going to be really interesting to see Python grow beyond developers and to a less sophisticated audience. That's a great answer. And part of your answer, you also mentioned the surprise success that Dask was also in attracting funding and always having full-time developers, which is, to the best of my understanding, pretty rare in the PyData ecosystem or Python more general, or maybe even the open source community, right? Where, yeah, it's mostly still grad students and people doing this in their free time. What do you think was the source of that success? And is there anything to be learned for these other projects that, like maybe PyMC3, who... <laughs> <laughs> just to choose one at random. Yeah, just one, one out of random. To, uh, yeah, to attract more funding or sync better up with, yeah, the business side. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I'll give you like a brief history of Dask's funding. Great. And then I'll sort of say my thoughts about that experience. Right, so Dask was originally funded, I was funded to work on Dask at Continuum, uh, which then became Anaconda. And we were funded from two things. Originally, we had a DARPA grant, so a US government Department of Defense grant to make open source software. I think the US government and generally speaking governments are great at funding software. If you can uh, spend the time to write the grants and hire a grant writer and go through that process, they're, they're great. And we were also funded through the margin, the profit, off of a bunch of consultants that were working at Continuum at the time. I think these people are actually the, the unsung heroes of the open source Python ecosystem. These people who are doing a bunch of like not fun work inside of banks or large companies, helping them use Python. And that generated a lot of profit, which then allowed Continuum to invest back in open source. So like I had a great job because a bunch of other people in Continuum had interesting, but like less great jobs. And it was really that profit part of Continuum, which allowed all of these things to exist. But that gave us maybe like our, our seed capital, right? That gave us enough to get going. And then we started interacting with companies, right? So we sold consulting services on Dask to a bunch of other for-profit companies. So like a bunch of hedge funds started using Dask quickly. Mm -hmm. And they had features they wanted built, and we built those features, and we took money from them. And that paid feature development is maybe like a little bit impure from an open source standpoint, but was really, really effective in driving the project, in funding the project, in helping us understand what was effective and what we could get money for in the future. So we did a bunch of that. Curious, actually, would that, was that inbound interest that you got from people, like companies that approached you and were like, oh, we love Dask, but only if it could do X, or how much sales was there yeah. involved in, in approaching these? The original contacts were previous contacts that Continuum had. They had previous engagements around NumPy or Numba to do similar things. And then I think what happened is that I sort of saw that working. I, I was really excited about that. I had just moved to New York at the time. And so I went and I knocked on the doors of every hedge fund and every bank in New York, and I gave them little desk pitches. And then some of them said like, yeah, this is great. Like, we would love to have this thing internally, but yeah, we need these things built out. And so they would pay for those things. And so, so yeah, it was a lot of me learning how to sell software. It's a good skill to have. Yeah, no, it's, it's fun. I recommend it. It also just taught me what was important to build, right? I think selling something is really a good, it clears things up about what's important, right? If someone's going to spend dollars on it, they really get very, very clear about what they want and don't want. And it's really good feedback. Right. That's interesting. Eventually, the thing that I found that I actually liked the most was government grants that were science grants where we partner with a science group. So this is where a lot of the Pangeo work came out of. Mm -hmm. The first time this happened, we got three institutions. There was Robert Abernathy, a professor at Columbia, who's an oceanographer. There was Joe Hammond and Kevin Paul at NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, who are more of like a institutional scientists, let's say. And there was, there was me and Anaconda. And we wrote a grant together to the National Science Foundation. And it wasn't to support open source software. It was to do science, because that's what NSF funds. But a third of that grant was to, to build out open source software. 
And that really worked out well because the science collaborators that we had, they, they knew how to write the grant. They knew the right program managers to talk to. They knew everything that would get the money out. They're really, really good at this. And then we came on as a third of that grant. And it was just highly in line with what NSF is used to funding. And it was this great large amount of money. It was like a million dollars over a few years. And yeah, it was amazing. We did great work with that. And then we were really successful. It turns out if you pair software developers, scientists together, they do really good work. And so I think we've like applied for a ton more grants in this same model. And I think Pangeo probably has, you know, five or $10 million of grant money coming in now. It's not all for open source, but, but enough of it is that it's, it's a really good sustaining amount. Right. Well, that sounds like the perfect segue to the new Dask company that you launched. Yeah, Coiled Computing. Uh, I think we incorporated a couple of weeks ago. It's super fresh. Uh, and I'm really excited about it and terrified at the same time. <laughs> yeah, tell us everything. Yeah, so what happened is that lots of companies use Dask today, but as they sort of increase their use of Dask, it gets more and more challenging. They run into different issues. So you might find you know, the Dask is used inside of some data science group, inside of mm-hmm. you know, some automotive company maybe. And they're early adopters, they're fine. But when they want to spread that out to the rest of the company, they, want to, they bring it to the IT department, they say, hey, I want everyone to have access to this. IT asks a few questions. They say, well, wait a minute, what, who do we call if this breaks? Right. What company can we engage with? And the answer is currently no one. Or they also ask like, hey, this is great, but I can't give access to all of the data scientists. I can't give them all access to Kubernetes or the cloud. Like we don't, like that's totally insecure. That's totally unsafe. They'll rack up huge bills. I need some software in between to help with that management problem. Or the last question is like, hey, you know, we need a bit of extra work done. How do we get that done? Who, what happens if someone sues us for using this? So there are a bunch of these problems that enterprises deal with that they really need a company to, to be around in order for the project to, to have full exposure inside that company. And so this happened enough times where people asked me, hey, who do I pay for Dask? And the answer, the answer of no one wasn't the answer that they wanted. They wanted a company to exist. And so now I'm making that company. And that's both to make sure that Dask can grow. We're at the stage where it definitely needs this company to grow further. And honestly, to make money. I think there's a fair amount of money in this process. And I'm hoping that we can take that money and we can push it back into open source development and really fix a lot of the problems that, uh, that exist today. Yeah, and in addition, it's such a great case study of yeah, how to build sustainable open source software. And one of those paths is building a company around that. And there aren't that many examples, I think, where this is, has been done. So it's really mm-hmm. yeah, forging a new path. So I'm really excited to see where that is. I actually say there actually are lots of examples of people building companies around open source software. What's maybe different about Dask is that Dask was sort of first community software. Right. Right. So you look at maybe like, like Plotly is a good example. Like Plotly, very popular graphing package, but it came out of a company first. And then they sort of went into open source and they're sort of are supporting that. But it, it's weird to go the other way, right? To start with open source, yeah. then move into a company. Uh, you know, Spark is probably a good example here. They were an academic project. You know, Claire Dara sort of started supporting Spark. Databricks was doing Spark. And there are challenges in doing that, right? There's community things to worry about. There's, it's a tricky thing, right? We have to sort of answer to two different masters, both a for-profit enterprise and an open source community. And doing that well is challenging. I hope we do well by the community, uh, but it definitely is going to take some work. Where do you see these conflicts emerging? At some point, we're going to sell some product, right? And that product will be proprietary. Mm -hmm. We will be making proprietary code and selling that code to companies. And that is because, honestly, that's what companies are used to doing. If I say, here's open source software, pay me for it, they don't know how to handle that. But if I say, hey, here's a thing you have to buy in order to use this thing, they're all on board with that. They actually often want that to exist just to get it through their procurement process. That's interesting. And so we need to figure out where that line is. We're going to be writing code. Not all of it's going to be open. And that's going to be interesting, right? I think that there's, there's some clear lines to draw there, right? I think that any code that's about correctness or algorithms or anything that the data scientist or analyst touches, that should all be open source. I think a lot of things that we'll sell will probably be around enabling IT. So making it easier to control who can deploy onto which kind of resource, interacting with enterprise IT systems like LVAP or Kerberos, tracking what everyone is doing in a large team, right? You know, team management is a big thing in enterprise. 
I think those things will probably be proprietary. But we'll find out. You know, the, the counterexample to this is Spark, right? If you look at Databricks, Databricks was sort of under competition from Amazon EMR, which is Amazon's Spark offering, mm-hmm. which is which is way cheaper than Databricks. Databricks charges about like 100% markup on your cloud costs. EMR charges around 40%. Yeah. And in order, for, in order for Databricks to compete against Amazon, they had to make a bunch of proprietary code in the guts of Spark, right? Databricks Spark is fundamentally different from open source Spark. It's much faster. I would hope not to go down that route, but that depends again on what customers arrive, what funding arrives, what uh, what Amazon does. So yeah, those are some conflicts that you know, I can see in the horizon. I think I have ideas for how to navigate around them, but we'll, we'll see. And so one common business model or bootstrapping process that I often see is that a company would start with selling servicing or consulting services to figure exactly those types of product ideas out and mm-hmm. bootstrap the company that way. Is that also what you plan to do here? Or do you already have con- more concrete ideas of what you want to build? Yeah, that's an interesting case because it's kind of like we've been running the bootstrapping consulting model for the last five years. Right. We were doing all of that at Anaconda, at NVIDIA to a certain extent in these government grants. And so we actually already have a lot of clients, or a lot of users today. We have a good sense for what they want. And you know, yeah. managed deployments, better team management, uh, advanced profiling—those are all the things that come up pretty often. So we're we'll do some consulting, certainly, especially where it advances the open source project effectively. What we're looking for right now, we're looking to sort of elevate those contracts into long-term support contracts. So some consulting—I like to think of it as like an hourly versus annual rate. Mm-hmm. Some consulting is, hey, I want this feature built. Here's an hourly rate. Build it for me, please. That's great. We're not so excited about that, but we'll do that for a little while. Another kind of support and services is I just want to be able to call you when things break. Make sure that things are okay. And there you're really paying not necessarily for an hourly rate, but just to have access on an as-needed basis. And that timeline, that kind of cadence, I think makes a lot more sense for supporting open source software. The problem with the hourly rate stuff is that it uh, it's very bursty. And so it's hard mm-hmm. to, to pay people and consistently give them jobs. The sort of annual contracts make a lot more sense. So we're shifting more towards that model. We will also build product, and that product will be funded by some investment. So I'm going to take on some venture capital. And this is like, a, I've got lots of thoughts about venture capital and how it makes sense and doesn't make sense. But in general, it's um, we're aiming towards funding mechanisms that give us more stability. And that's part of that's because you know we're not all grad students anymore, right? right. You know, we're we're buying houses, we're having kids. Our risk tolerance is way lower than it was ten years ago. And having a few million dollars in the bank really just helps everyone to be okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, why should open source and the maintainers not get a piece of the pie that is making, yeah, most of the IT uh, these days go around? I think that's just totally fair. So what stage is the company in, in terms of, are you looking to hire? You touched on fundraising. I'd definitely be curious to hear your thought there. Yeah. So right now, right, I've been doing this for a couple of, couple of months now. We are currently looking for maybe three kinds of people. We're looking for investors. Although honestly, I think we found them and we're just sort of like sorting through. I imagine by the time this blog post errors, there will be some announcement. Mm-hmm. And that's actually interesting, trying to find the right investors who, who share values. There's a bunch of people with money right now who want to invest in open source software. Yeah. And they have different motivations. Some of them actually have very interesting and different stories. You know, some of them are just investors. Some of them have run companies before. Some of them have run open source companies before. And it's actually quite, there's more variety than I expected going into this process. So finding the right group there is interesting. We're looking for large clients. These are today mostly people that we know, who we know use Dask a lot and they're, you know, personal relationships. But there are a surprising number of people who I don't know who use Dask a lot. Uh, I find them in conferences all the time. So yeah, maybe this is like a pitch. If you're a large company and you have Python users and you have a large data sets that you want to analyze, and you're feeling some pain combining those Python users and those large data sets, uh, you might want to reach out. We're at Coiled, where a company's name is Coiled Computing. So coiled.io or reach out to sales at coiled.io. And we can see how successful you're going to be accelerating Python. We're very good at scaling Python, probably the world experts. So we want to reach out. Yeah. 
And then, yeah, we're also recruiting. The sort of the two sides of the business that we're recruiting for, at least for engineering, are open source support roles. These are usually people who are used to doing open source software and are also comfortable interacting with customers. So this is sort of the sort of long-term support kind of contracts I was talking about before. Mm-hmm. We have a good bench of these people because a lot of the DAS maintainers sort of fit this profile, but we should diversify a bit. And so we're interested in seeing what's who's out there. If you go to coal.io, there's a jobs category and there's a place you can apply there. We're also looking for people to build out the product, right? So we're looking for people who know how to deploy things on the cloud, know things like Kubernetes, and have some experience, like to say scar tissue, around enterprise deployments. So, you know, right. you should have like strong thoughts between Cognito and Keycloak or, you know, LDAP. Uh, these are all things that you should know about. Interestingly, these are not things that I know about, right? The actual product that we build in a proprietary way is totally different from the skill set you need to build out the open source project. So I actually feel very, um, uh, very vulnerable in this technology use case because I actually don't know how to build a proprietary product. We need to hire people who are very good to do this same kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, I think a lot of time in your career, you were full-time remote. Is that true? Yeah. I've been remote for the last maybe six years. And is the is Coil also a remote first company or how's that work? Yeah, definitely. I'll never go back. Remote for a few reasons. Yeah. One, the DAS maintainers themselves are just spread out. And so as we hire them, we'll need to be flexible to that. Two, just hiring today is, uh, is interesting. If you want to base yourself in Silicon Valley, in San Francisco, or in New York City, engineers are very expensive. This feels kind of weird to say, but if you go to a place like Europe or South America, like the, the talent per cost ratio is huge. Yes. There are excellent people, places that are not California and New York, who don't require you know, $300,000 salaries. Because the rents are not as insane as in San Francisco. Yeah, it's just a, it's an odd culture. You know, also, you know, we have customers everywhere. We have users everywhere. Dask itself is a distributed project. It makes sense to do it that way. You know, I personally also just like living a remote lifestyle. My job before I did open source was at a Department of Energy National Lab, which is definitely the kind of job you had to do on site. And it was like a, you know, an hour-long commute there, an hour-long commute back. It was sort of, it was difficult to both enjoy my work and also live life at the same time. Yeah. And I find a remote lifestyle really is more, more fits better into the rhythms of life. You know, I can go for a walk. I'm actually going to the beach later this afternoon when I have sort of a, like a two hour break in my, in my call schedule. That's awesome. And that just, you know, makes me a happier person. I will say there are some challenges though. I think that it's, it's hard to replicate like the whiteboard experience when you're doing design. Yeah. It's very nice to be in person occasionally for that. I would say also as a manager, it's, it's hard to grow junior engineers in a remote company. We've been lucky enough to always be able to hire a bunch of senior engineers who know what they're doing in this space because we sort of pull from the source community. But if you're bringing in new people, if you're doing interns, if you want to you know, improve diversity in a project, it's really helpful to have those people be physically next to someone who's more senior. And that I haven't figured out how to do. I don't know how to grow people in a remote company as effectively. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, and I think also where hopefully a lot of innovation can and must happen to because yeah these types of companies I think are just getting more and more popular and common mm-hmm. but yeah the downsides exist but I'd be surprised if there aren't solutions for that too I mean I guess one thing that a lot of companies seem to do is to have just these summits where people would come together so at Quantopian that's what we do is like every couple of months maybe we would just meet in a, in a location and then work from there it's not the perfect replacement but there's I did found that there are benefits where sort of saving time up to then all meet together and everyone prepares for a particular that time. And then it's very mm-hmm. interactive and collaborative for that short burst of time. And then people go their ways again and, and work on things that they discussed in their own space and time. So that I think provides some balance to this problem. Yeah. No, and I, I look forward to learning all of those things. Actually, the, the first Dask Summit, not Company Summit, but the open source product, it's happening next week. That's exciting. Very excited to have everybody meet each other. I think I have met everybody, but they've never met each other. And so I'm looking forward to having a lot of pairwise relationships. Where's that happening? That's happening in Washington, D.C. Capital One is generously uh, providing space. And then NVIDIA, I think, is providing a bit of financial support as well. Uh, so yes, yeah, about 50 maintainers and expert users half of each. 
and we're just going to talk about what uh, what needs to get done. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah. And what was the experience like for you so far in just always being more on the technical side of things and now really taking on the founder hat, which probably requires a completely different skill set? How are you enjoying it? Yeah, no, I'm actually, I'd like to say I've done everything already, but badly. So, you know, I, I've done sales for Desk. I've you know, sold contracts, I've negotiated things. I've done marketing. I like, you know, make YouTube videos, I track them, I like publish them on Twitter. I've done hiring. Like I've done all these things, but just kind of casually. Right. And now like the stakes are just much higher. And I'm sort of being forced to do lots of new things every day. So I can feel myself, like my brain getting a little bit more flexible, a bit more plastic. And it's, uh, it's exhausting, also exhilarating and terrifying. My emotions swing, be very positive one day, do very negative the next. It's an interesting experience. The startup roller coaster. Yeah, not something I would recommend. But I think it'll be worth it. Yeah. I remember Elon Musk being asked by a couple of students who were thinking of founding companies. So they all had this glow in their eyes and they asked him like, so what is it like founding a company? Like, it must be amazing. <laughs> and he just completely flat out said, oh, it's a lot like chewing glass. And they're always just like, what? <laughs> no, it's going to be amazing. But yeah, so I think it's mostly for people who just feel the urge to really, where they need to do, to do it. Because like, yeah, I mean, it is exhilarating, but also daunting at times. Yeah, I think people say there's different kinds of founders. Some people want to make a company. Some want to be Elon Musk. I have no desire to run a company, yeah. to be honest. Like if I can find someone who can replace me, I'm going to hire them the next day. This just seems to be the thing that needs to get done next. Right. I think in Dask, that's always been my role. I figure out whatever's not getting done and make sure that gets done. And right now, we need a company. That's the next thing. And so I'm figuring out how to do that. And I hope that someday someone much better than me can replace me in this role. And that's what hiring is for. So I'm looking forward. There's got some great hires coming in. I'm excited to talk about them once they're announced. And I think that my job will become a lot easier once they're here. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show and best of luck with your company. Thank you, Thomas. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for having me.